I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money, the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. And this week, we're continuing our Hold On series of live national call-in shows about the state of our mental health. In this hour, we asked public radio listeners around the country to call in if the idea of getting therapy was something they felt excluded from, either because of how they were raised or because of expectations around masculinity or some other reason. That being said, I really appreciated how ready to talk these callers were. Vulnerability, especially on live radio, is hard. Please share this episode or any part of this series with anyone in your life who you think may be helped by it. Friends, relatives, clients, students. And you can be in touch with us anytime by emailing deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This Saturday, you'll get our final installment of Hold On in your podcast feed, all about mental health and the workplace. Okay, here's the show. This is Hold On, a live national call-in series about our mental health from WNYC and Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast I host. I'm Anna Sale. In this series of specials that we've had on public radio stations across the country, we've been talking with you this month about your experiences with the mental health care system, about what it's been like to get a diagnosis, about getting on medication and figuring out the best ways to monitor how it's working and the side effects with your provider. We've talked about the particulars of the mental health care crisis for teens and heard from mental health professionals about how their clients are doing. To generalize what they've told us, not good. There's a lot of feelings of overwhelm about the state of the world, gun violence, climate change, making it and affording housing, and also a lot of feeling disconnected from community, very much like you're on your own. And that's what the people are saying who have found a way to access mental health support. We've heard from you in this series how difficult that can be. Figuring out what kind of therapy or mental health care you need takes time and effort, and also money. If you pay out of pocket, you've got to fit it in your budget. If you have insurance, you've got to do all the research to find someone who will take it, and then maybe wait a long time for them to have an opening. It is not easy to access mental health care. And that's even when you or your loved one is bought into the idea of finding mental health treatment. This hour, we want to talk with you about the reasons we don't access mental health care that are not because of these systemic barriers, and more about the reasons we tell ourselves that mental health care may be good for some, but isn't for us. Sometimes that's because of stigma. 
Other times, it's because you haven't seen people like you benefit from mental health treatment. And what you know of the available treatments don't seem like they were designed for people like you. Here are some statistics on who seeks out mental health care. Women are twice as likely to go to therapy as men. When facing anxiety and depression, white men are twice as likely to seek treatment as black men. And if given a diagnosis, nearly 50% of white people will seek treatment within a year versus 33% of Hispanic people, 31% of black people, and 25% of Asian people. These, of course, are are big, rough numbers, but we want to get into your stories this hour about how you have felt this in your life. We're asking for your calls if the concept of taking care of your mental health didn't feel like it was for you. Men, men of color, we're asking for your voices in particular this hour. We want to hear from you if you still feel that way or if you've changed. What got you there? Was it a breakdown or a burst of anger when finally you were forced to ask for help? Maybe it took being court-ordered to go to counseling. Or maybe a partner or spouse put down an ultimatum. They wanted more vulnerability from you. Or maybe it was raising children of your own. Avi Klein is here. He's a psychotherapist who's been working with men, women, and couples since 2009 after graduating from the Columbia University School of Social Work. Welcome, Avi. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. And also here is Danielle Munoz. She's with us. She's the director of the Center for Basic Needs at Cal State University, Long Beach, and she's a trained therapist. She also hosts a podcast called Nopal Queens that focuses on mental health within Latino communities. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you. Avi, a large part of your psychotherapy practice has focused on men. And now we know men have lots of different personalities and dispositions, but generally they are a population less likely to pursue pursue therapy than women. So I want to ask you, when you have someone coming to you for the first time and they show up with their arms crossed, they're sizing you up, you are feeling their skepticism about what a session with you might be like and what it's going to achieve for them. How do you invite them in? How do you explain what you want to do together? Yeah. um, First of all, I think it's important to like you mentioned in your introduction, to to note that a lot of the men who come to see me, initially it's at someone else's request to their children mm-hmm. or their spouse. Um, so that informs part of the reluctance because I think they feel like they're in trouble in some mm-hmm. way. Um, I think I, I mean, any therapist will try and join with their clients. You want them to feel um, safe with you. I, since I often see men who who do feel like they're in trouble, I really try my best to convey how much I respect them, respect even their motivation for coming. You know, even if they wouldn't come for themselves, they're coming for a family member or someone they love. And I think there's something really honorable in that. So Hmm. I want to make sure they know that I see that. Um, And I think it's really important to me that I like the people that I work with. So I try very hard to find things that are likable about them because you can't fake that. You wrote in an essay for the New York Times that one of the first emotions men often name when they're talking about how they're feeling is frustration. Mm. Um, what does that word signify for you? What does that mean? You know, I think about it, there are two things. One is, I think there are studies about um, how men and women cope with their emotions. And uh, it's pretty broad, but men have a tendency to externalize their emotions, which means they put them outside of themselves. And women tend to internalize, which means they blame themselves for 
what they're feeling and what's happening around them. So when I think of the word frustration, I think of it as a reaction to something outside of yourself. So that's one thing that I think about. And the other is that it's kind of a broad, vague word. And men, you know, traditionally have been discouraged from being in touch with their emotions. And so sometimes they lack kind of a nuanced emotional vocabulary, at least at first. And so um, frustration to me is, is one way that they're trying to explain something that's going on inside, but they don't quite yet have the language to do it. And that's our work together. Hmm. We've talked in this series about the feeling wheel. If, if you are by a computer, listeners, go Google feelings wheel hmm. and look at all the various words there are to try to articulate what your feelings are. It's been very helpful to me to look at it um, as someone who also often finds myself saying, I feel frustrated. <laughs> it's not just men. Um, Danielle, we first met when I was reporting my book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. You have long worked in, in public universities in California, and you are often encountering students when they are in crisis. At the Center for Basic Needs, where you work in Long Beach on campus, students are coming through the door because they lack housing that's secure and stable. They don't have enough money for food. And then you may notice some underlying mental health challenges. When you are meeting someone in crisis and then you are inclined to recommend that they seek out some mental health care or mental health treatment of some sort, how do you convince them it's worth a try? And when do you suggest that they do it if they're coming to you in crisis? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think for me, I understand that it's also coming from understanding their brain and how the brain works. And sometimes people hear it from that angle rather than the stigma behind mental health, which sometimes is like, well, you might be insinuating I need help. And culturally, some people equate that with I'm crazy. And so they can't hear that when you say you might need to talk to someone about this, um, especially when a lot of people try to take things on on their own. So when I come from it from a more science side, I'll say, you know, you've been in survival mode for so long that your brain is probably just doing its best to protect you. And sometimes that can lead to feelings of just being really hypervigilant or not being able to sleep at night because your brain is so revved up. So sometimes it's helpful when you talk to someone about what's been going on that your brain can adjust and calibrate again and you don't always feel like you're being chased by a bear and that's the that feeling of peace that you want can sometimes come from just talking. Um, and you're doing it because that's what's going to help your brain understand that you're not in survival mode anymore. So, and this happens a lot when I actually house people. Right around the time they get housed and stable is where mental health challenges increase because they've had some time to rest and things are bubbling up. Um, so I try to explain it more like your brain is really trying to protect you Talking to someone can sometimes bring that down a bit and let you have some peace. And, and especially mm. if I talk about it leading to better sleep or feeling more organized, a lot of people really want that back in uh, their life. Like suggesting it could be a, a, a means to relief of some sort. I want to bring Mike mm -hmm. from New Jersey into the conversation. Mike, what's been your experience um, with kind of encountering your own internal reluctance to access mental health treatment? Yes, thank you for having me on. I just wanted to speak on uh, which which I was currently speaking about, and it was, you know, I could see the profession in which I do. It was really accurate, you know what I mean. And and then just speaking on the reluctant side is, you could still hear those things and still uh, 
try to not identify with it, to mm-hmm. not do it. But uh, I was told by somebody, my sisters, that I should go to therapy because our mom passed in 2018. And I deal with things through, <clears throat> like like everyone's saying, I got, I tried to deal with it externally. Yeah. And uh, I just kind of felt that it wasn't right because mentally I was kind of like sluggish and I, I still worked out and stuff, everything on the outside out. I really looked fine, but you know, your family members and people who love you can really tell. And so, did you uh, did you take your sister's advice? Did you go go seek some treatment, some help from someone? Yes, I I, I didn't get the treatment. I reached out a couple of times when I, I was employed for a company, but now I work for myself. Uh-huh. So like once I switched over to my the other insurance, I just didn't go back into figuring it out, but uh it helped me be more open with them. Yeah. Thanks for your call, Mike. What I hear you saying there is your sisters nudged you to to have some conversations with a professional. And then, as we've talked about, it can be hard to keep up that kind of treatment when your insurance changes. But uh, maybe those conversations with your sisters have continued and maybe deepened a bit. I want to bring in Michele in Schoenberg, Illinois. Hi, Michele. Hi. Hi. How are you? Did I say your town correctly? Is that Schoenberg, Illinois? Yeah. That's actually where I work, but yes, you said it right. Okay, cool. What's been your experience with accessing mental health care? What do you have to add to the conversation? So I've always honestly been an advocate of mental health, especially to my male peers, but I've only been in therapy probably about a year now. I've always given myself the excuse that I don't have time or it's unnecessarily for me in a sense, one reason or another, up until um, I met my girlfriend. Uh, but two, three years into our relationship, we hit a kind of a wall and both, you know, she was dealing with her, her trauma. And I know I've come to realize after, you know, talking with her that, you know, I had some unresolved trauma, too. And then as, you know, males, as a first generation immigrant where my mom, her go to was I don't have time for depression. We didn't really have, you know, space to speak about our mental health in a sense. So even though I knew it was, you know, necessarily a toxic trait, what I tried to do was promote it, but never did it myself. But, you know, like I said, since we hit this wall, I made the plunge. I walked into a uh, an office that my coworker recommended, and it's been actually, you know, very, very helpful and very healing for both of us, honestly. Ah, you describe it as a plunge, which can sometimes be exhilarating, also a little painful. hundred <laughs> um, percent. Yeah, it's, it's like we, we often bank on our friends and our families to be the shoulder we cry on and, you know, speak to, which is fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, usually it's not their responsibility to deal with our problems with our traumas. You know, so it's also not fair to put this emotional baggage. Sometimes you want to vent and you vent in a way that it's just on. It doesn't seem like it, but maybe just unhealthy for your partner or your family members. So it's nice to have someone who's, you know, willing not only to help, but is unbiased and actually has you know, a response to some of our bigger questions. Mm, I think thank you for what you added there. I think sometimes in some families um, where accessing therapy or mental health treatment isn't isn't part of a family tradition, it can feel like a bit of a threat or uncomfortable for the family when one member of the family first goes to therapy. And I, it's interesting there how you frame it as a loving uh, a, a loving gesture for the rest of your family and, and not putting the weight on them and, and depending solely on them. Avi, is there anything you want to say to Mc- what Michaela added to the conversation? No, I've, I applaud what he said. I, I can tell he's done a lot of thinking about it. And um, 
I liked his distinction about, you know, as much as, as wonderful as it is to share with friends and family that there's something different about what happens when you meet with a therapist and maybe you don't want to, you don't always want to bring what you bring to a therapist to your friends and family and, and it's good to have both resources. I want to ask you, Avi, in particular about this practice, the style of therapy that that you do called accelerated experimental dynamic psychotherapy. Experiential, but yes. Experiential, <laughs> excuse me. No um, what is that and, and how is that? If I have not been in therapy before yeah. and I'm not sure it's for me, I'm picturing a couch, I'm picturing a box of tissues, I'm picturing someone taking notes on me with a notebook with a raised eyebrow. Um, how do you describe what you're going to do together? Well, um, I think more broadly, the kind of therapy I practice is one of a newer wave of therapies that focus a little bit more on the body, on expressing emotional experience, not just understanding what you're feeling cognitively, but having um, access to it, a felt experience, right? So that it's not just knowing that you're sad, but allowing yourself to cry, which for some people is easy, um, but for some people, especially men, might feel a little harder. Um, and so in some ways, there are other um, differences. I think, like I mentioned before, the relationship um, between the therapist and the client is a little bit more at the forefront. Um, it's not just a one-sided listening experience, which for some people can feel alienating. I really try to um, bring my presence into the room and and have it be a healing experience more explicitly with my clients. It's not unique to the way I practice. I think a lot of other therapists practice that way too. Um, but I think for men, it can be very powerful because um, they haven't always had relationships where they feel really safe to explore and express their feelings. And and so it's been a model that's been um, really important to me in that way. Mm. I want to bring Griffith in Baltimore, Maryland into our conversation. Griffith, what, what do you want to add? What's been your experience in accessing mental health care? Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. So my experience comes a little bit, um, it's a little bit niche, but I wanted to bring up the topic of eating disorders and how they are so vastly undertreated because of the stigma around them and the stigma that they have to look a certain way, you have to weigh a certain amount, there's BMI cutoffs, and the amount of people who don't seek help is just astounding for like very, very disordered, dangerous behaviors um, where they just don't feel like they're being seen or heard because maybe they don't fit the stereotypical look or demographic, especially with men, especially with younger people. And I just... I. I think about the number of people that could be getting care but aren't getting care because they feel internally like they aren't valid enough or sick enough. And Griffith, you share what you feel comfortable sharing on the radio, but is this something that you, yeah, have, of that you have personal personal exposure to? Yeah, definitely. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 13, and I have been in and out of treatment all of my adult and teenage life. And just the, there's a really huge variation on the demographics. There's men, there's lots of people of color who struggle with these things. But, you know, the the stereotype doesn't necessarily include those demographics. Um, as a trans person, I know that I felt that way, too, um, you know, with the stigma around men and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your call. Um, Danielle, do you want to add something to what Griffith was calling about, just about when 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 it, mental health difficulties don't aren't expressing themselves in sort of these very sort of 
blunt ways that we have ideas of what it's supposed to look like, can it be difficult for people to recognize that they ought to be asking for help? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they touched on a really... uh, great topic. And I think something that a lot of people ask themselves, like, am I sick enough? Or how bad do I have to get until I get help? And it's actually you, you don't have to wait, you know, until you get to a certain point, if you know, that you're starting to feel that distress, if you're having those intrusive thoughts, um, if you're starting to feel like you don't like your body and, and who you are, and when you look in the mirror, you have what we sometimes call body dysphoria, where you just have this extreme sadness about how you look. And those are extremely valid reasons to get help. And a lot of times a therapist will, you know, start wherever you're at. And and that's one thing I love about therapy. And when I do therapy, it's about it's up to you. It's when you're ready to start healing. And um, there is no idea for me about what it's supposed to look like. It's about what you're feeling and what you want from your life. So yeah, they just brought up a really good topic and made some really good points about folks really struggling with, am I sick enough? And it doesn't help when insurance companies sort of push therapists to have to make a diagnosis before they pay for people's therapy. And so that's sometimes can perpetuate that feeling too of you sort of have to be, there's a certain point where you can start getting therapy. And I just think that just like our caller said, it discourages people from getting help. Hmm. I want to bring Armand in Chicago into our conversation. Armand, hello, you're on the air. Hi, hello. What's been your experience with thinking about mental health care? Yeah, I kind of wanted to add, um, speaking on maybe black men specifically or people of color, um, how hard it is that uh, when we do finally try to open up and we do finally, you know, choose uh, transparency or whatever it may be, when the person we go to <clears throat> isn't exactly open or um, receptive of our feelings or thoughts or whatever it may be. And it's often gaslighted. And I feel like there's something there where it prevents men to get to that therapist because they went to their most trusted person or companion and they weren't able to get that. So it, I feel like there's a barrier there because a lot of men feel like um, they they already opened up and they did this thing. And then they just got shamed or got used against them or, from, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And are you speaking about that kind of experience in in the setting of, of being with a mental health professional or the experience of being vulnerable with someone in your life, a loved one, a friend, a family member, and then feeling like you didn't get the kind of understanding that you hoped for? Yeah. For me specifically, it was it's both. I, it took me, I feel like maybe three or four tries with different therapists. So I found someone I, you know, could really resonate with and they could resonate with me. So, I, I mean, the barriers are there and, uh, you know, um, getting back to that sense of I've already tried, um, that's, that, that's one of the biggest barriers I had to get over. Because even after that first therapist, it took me about a year to try again. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call. Um, Avi, do you want to add something to what Armand was, was just saying? I mean, I, I absolutely want to affirm uh, what he's describing. I know it. Um, I, I'm familiar with both sides of that. Um, certainly, I've heard from 
clients that I've worked with and, and outside of my own patients, the experience of having a therapist not validate your experience or, um, you know, kind of deny what you're, what you're going through and how much that can alienate a person from, from wanting to try again, especially when you're not sure if you're, if what you're struggling with is really valid, that can be, uh, really devastating. And I've also seen, um, quite a, quite a number of times men, you know, who are encouraged to go to therapy because their partners want them to be vulnerable. And then suddenly when they're vulnerable, um, their partners are a little turned off by what they see, you know, so that's real too. Hmm. And Armand used the word shame there. Um, and I just wonder if you could, let's talk about shame. At at the root of most stigma is the idea of shame. I have some, there's something about me that I want to not acknowledge, cover up. Um, it's a red hot feeling when you tap into it. Um, how do you t- talk about shame with with someone who's who's feeling that maybe openly for the first time? Yeah, I, let's talk about shame. I think, especially, I mean, for everyone, but in but for men, I think shame is such a powerful feeling and such an inhibitor of them um, getting in touch with other emotions, especially you know because there are some definitions of masculinity that um, it's all about what you are or are not and and shame is all about um, you know like if you're not man enough for example um, and being in touch with your feelings for some for some men can make them feel emasculated so shame is operating all the time when I'm working with someone I think part of that is you know when it's appropriate I'll share my own experience that they don't feel so alone um, with what they're feeling to lessen their shame because I think that's a great way to reduce shame is to know that you're not the only person who's felt that way or has even felt shame about what you're going through. Um, and, and then it gets complicated also sometimes because sometimes it's, it can be healthy when you've hurt someone, for example, it's okay to feel shame. And, um, and sometimes I try to affirm that because I think it lets us know, um, that our conscience is operating and that's something sort of good inside of us that we want to hold on to. So mm. those are two ways that I might work with it. I want to bring John in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, into our conversation. John, what's been your experience with that inner voice in your head uh, telling you maybe mental health care is not for you or your loved ones? Hey, well, um, thank you so much for having me. It was wild to tune into NPR and hear something that was just like, wow, so applicable to me, which is like a very NPR thing. Oh, um, good. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's been wild. Um, sort of. Grew up in a very anti-healthcare uh, and medication uh, evangelical home, and then like realized later, got a diagnosis of ADHD and had a really bad therapist for a bit. Um, that I was too, I don't know, uh, stressed, what well, something to to say, hey, I need to see someone else. So I ended up essentially uh, ghosting them through an email through their assistant after a little bit. Uh, but through job stress and parenthood stress and stuff like I, the, I, the task of finding a good therapist seems almost insurmountable, even though I know that I need one really badly. Hmm. Um, you're feeling that right now yeah, without I've a therapist, you're feeling the need, but not knowing where, where to get that treatment. Right. Yeah. But that and insurance changes making, uh, you know, like, ADHD medication, crazy, unaffordable, and yeah, just wild 
definitely need therapy. The task seems impossible, <laughs> which is probably inaccurate, but yeah. I, I, uh, you are not the only person that feels that way when, when dealing with the mental health care system. Um, Danielle, is there anything you want to say to John about like just one place to look where he might find some help, a, a resource who could lead him to the next right door um, in his community? Yeah, and it, it depends where they are, what state they're in. But I know that there are some, you know, really good, maybe based mental health places that offer low cost uh, therapy that are sometimes really impactful. I know I used one when I was in grad school. I, I went to a local place where they only charged 25 to 50. I think it was because there were interns working, but they were so passionate and they were so in touch with me. I actually felt that that was very valuable at the time. Um, and especially because I need something quick. And they, the caller touched on something really important. If you're struggling with ADHD, the idea to stay organized and on top of this is the hard part too. So it's like, that's the part where they, you know, you do need some help walking through the system because of all the executive functioning it takes just to set up your own services. So um, some as someone who else also struggles with ADHD, it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's that's the irony right there is I need to stay on top of it and be task oriented just to get this help to be task oriented. <laughs> it's very hard. Thank you, Danielle. And John, thank you so much for your call. You can check out our list of resources at WNYC.org slash hold on. We're going to be taking more of your calls after the break about encountering your own biases, stereotypes, stigmas about accessing mental health care. And if if you found it helpful, if you want to be an ambassador and tell people about how it's changed your life, this is Hold On. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers, together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Hold On, a live national call-in show about our mental health. I'm Anna Sale. I host the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, and we are on public radio stations across the country during this May Mental Health Awareness Month. And we're taking your calls this hour about stigma and mental health. I am joined by Avi Klein, a psychotherapist in New York who sees men, women, couples, and we've been talking this hour in particular about what gets in the way of men accessing therapy. They are not as likely as women to access therapy. Women are twice as likely to access therapy. And Danielle Munoz is joining us from Cal State University, Long Beach, where she is the director of the Center for Basic Needs. And Danielle, I want to ask you, in your family growing up, was 
Was seeking out mental health care something that was part of your family's practice? It wasn't. I think that mental health treatment was even just a system my family wasn't familiar with. They were grew up um, in a town that was very under-resourced, and I also came from a Latino community, and my grandparents immigrated here. So I, I think where they came from and, and the city that they lived in, which was very under-resourced, just didn't provide those kinds of um, things. And so even I was just talking to my aunt the other day and just in her 60s, she's like, I'm just making all these connections and realizations now in my life, um, learning and unlearning things uh, throughout my childhood that I didn't know how to name to it until now. And so I know that uh, we just weren't familiar at all and even knew to ask. And I feel like there's even a sense of uh, if I ask for help for myself, I'm being selfish. I should be, at, you know, thinking about everyone else first before myself. Yeah. What What do you say back to that, to someone who says maybe they're looking for an excuse, but one of the excuses they grab onto is, oh, the therapy is just indulgent. It's me, 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 me. Like, I've got kids to take care of. You're, you just want this drama over here, make it all about you. Like, what do you say back to those kinds of harsh critiques that people can face when they are looking to get mental health care? I feel like mental health care really supports you in being able to be that person for others. And so if you're taking care of your needs first, you're sort of refilling your cup. And I explain it to families, especially when I work with Latino families, um, it's like imagine your kids and your and your spouse and your parents and your you know tias tios your cousins they're all taking something from you they need you and so you're like an emotional ATM and they're withdrawing all day well an ATM at some point needs to be refilled and so imagine that every time you help someone you're giving away a little bit a little bit more and a little bit more um, and so what therapy can do or just talking to someone is refill your own cup right? Or replenish yourself so that you, the reality is you might have to still go back out there the next day with the kiddos, you know, or take care of your parents. And, you know, a lot of Latinos, we do caregiving uh, when our own parents get older. It's very common for us to stay within the family for that elder care. Um, and so I feel like they can hear it from that angle because it is validating. People do need a lot from them and they are very important, but that by filling up their own cup again, they can still be that person and and not have to uh, sacrifice their sanity. Um, and so just mm -hmm. kind of understanding it from that view and not taking it away from them that by doing therapy, you're somehow going to have a different role. Like it's, you're going to still have the same role. You're just going to be better at it. Mm -hmm. I want to bring Victor from Philadelphia into our conversation. Victor, what's been your experience with this, with the question of whether and when to access mental health care? Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, my experience has been fairly has been pretty positive for the for the most part. I started going to I started seeing a mental health therapist when I was in college, and I've been going ever since. Hmm. What prompted you to first try it out? Um, for me, uh, I just want to give like a quick background for me. Like, uh, I'm a first generation American whose parents are from West Africa. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of hardships growing up between trying to navigate between their culture, uh, American culture, and, and um, like the black American subculture. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I always grew up with like uh, just always feeling anxious and always going through depression. And 
before I saw a therapist, I always thought that there were my problems. There's like, it's my fault. But uh, when I saw a therapist, it really opened my eyes and see that it wasn't necessarily, it's not necessarily my fault. It was just my upbringing and how I was raised. Yeah, you had a lot of things you were trying to integrate. Um, Avi, is there something you want to say to Victor while he's on the line? I think that's so wonderful that you tried out therapy and have had a positive experience and have stuck with it ever since. And going back to our conversation about shame earlier, I think what you're describing is such a common way when people are sort of alone with their experience, it's natural to feel somehow blame yourself because there's no other way to make sense of it. And it really does take a conversation with someone else to rethink your narrative around that. Mm-hmm. And Victor, I want to give a shout out to to campus-based mental health centers because that's where a lot of people who have the ability to, to, to be in school on a campus maybe access mental health care for the first time. Was it difficult for you to figure out how to keep your therapy up as your life, as you moved on from school? Um, yes and no. Uh, it was just difficult at times to find a therapist uh, either A, uh, that will accept my insurance or that's available during my time schedule. Because, um, yeah, it's been because uh, my job has changed, the hours has changed, so it's been difficult at times to find someone more consistently. But since uh, the pandemic, uh, it's just been a lot easier since all of them are, are all virtual these days. Yeah. And do you talk with your family of origin, your parents, about yeah. what you've learned about yourself in therapy? Oh, man. Yeah, I, I have. And it <laughs> becomes a source of contention because my mom, especially, you know, she's a deacon at her church. And for her, if you have mental health issues, you got to talk to Jesus. Pray, pray, mm-hmm. pray to Jesus and he'll answer your prayers. And I always try to suggest my mom and my brother, especially, to go see a therapist because my dad, you know, he's I'm grateful. Without him, I wouldn't even be in this country. So but besides that, he's uh, he's an alcoholic. So we dealt with a lot of issues relating to that, uh, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. So I, I wasn't even aware of adult children alcoholics, for instance, until I saw a therapist. So even now, I try to encourage my brother to see a therapist because, um, you know, I'm not a professional, so it's not appropriate for me to diagnose. But I can sense that there is depression and codependency going on. So I just want him, always try to promote him to go see a therapist, even offer to pay for him. But he's always been reluctant to do, to go and see a therapist, mainly because my mom just does not see any value in it. And I think my mom is influenced my brother's uh, viewpoint when it comes to seeing uh, a, a professional, to seek uh, professional help. Yeah. Victor, thank you so much for your call. You're describing family dynamics that I bet um, are not unfamiliar to many people listening along. Um, Avi, I want to ask you about couples in particular. Um, I'm imagining that when a couple comes to you, one member of the couple is sort of the one who booked the appointment, found you, pushed this to occur, and maybe another is less bought in. Um, when you're in a session with two people and one of the person, one of the people really wants something to happen and the other person is not really sure they want to be in the room, um, can that be an effective session? Like, how do, you, how do you open that conversation and who do you focus on? Yeah, um, that's a great question and a very common dynamic. And 
for starters. I, I think I focus on the fact that whether they're um, entirely gung-ho about being in the room, they are in the room, and that counts for a lot, um, which I guess is another way of saying that's the person that I, I tend to focus on more because I think um, having them come around to, to being fully in the room is really important. Um, and often it turns out that it's really not um, – it's not about doing therapy. It's about the feeling of failure. Um, mm. It's that, you know, and, and you know, even though we're being sort of vague, it tends to be that the if we're talking about a heterosexual couple, that the male partner is the one who feels this way, that being in couples therapy is a sign that they failed instead of maybe an opportunity to get closer. And, um, and I think there are a lot of ways to work with that because that's – to me, it touches my heart because they really care about the relationship, and and that's what I, where I might go next. Mm-hmm. I want to bring Alex in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, into our conversation. Alex, what's been your experience encountering stigma around mental health care? Oh yeah. Um, so for context, I am a transgender man who's been fully, I guess, as they call it, stealth, which is to say, I'm perceived by cisgender people as a cisgender person for about three to four years, I have a bouquet of mental health issues, and I've been through the system several times, both pre-transition as a female and post-transition as a male. And um, what I'll say is, especially like as a woman, it was almost seen when you were talking about like your mental health issues and stuff, it was seen as like a bonding experience, you kind of bond over those vulnerabilities. I remember a lot of times with conversations with some of my women friends when I would start talking with them, one of the earliest conversations we would have was about mental illness. Like, oh, this has been my experience. This has been your experience. Let's bond and discuss our vulnerabilities. With men, it was kind of where trauma was seen as a strength, something to make you more masculine, something to one-up each other with. I've been in a lot of conversations where it's been like, oh, my dad's, you know, so-and-so, my dad's an alcoholic, and then immediately it'll be one-up, and it'll be like, oh, my old man used to do this. And you all laugh about it. And it's kind of seen with your masculinity it's seen not as a way to be vulnerable and move past it it's seen as a way of to like one-up each other and prove i'm a better man because so-and-so trauma happened to me and that makes me better than all of you because my masculinity has been improved and obviously going through therapy a lot of that is very different just because as a woman if you're in a womanly experience having a woman therapist kind of one-on-one you're used to talking about those vulnerabilities you're used to being that open but as transitioning as a man, talking to a woman or even another man, a male therapist, you're sitting there and it's like, well, how do I talk about this when I'm so used to talking about my trauma is a series of one-upping. It's a series of glossing over and using it as a way to further my social class, mm. per se, my social standing, and not as a way of vulnerability. You're not moving on. You're simply using it as kind of a leverage tool competitive, a competitive drive to it. And Alex, I'm curious for you, what's what's been your relationship to stoicism and masculinity as you've transitioned? Like, do you find that you present in a different way when you're having powerful emotions? Yeah, I would say definitely. Like, well, with stoicism, particularly, like with being a man, and I think I'm not sure if this also just has to deal with like testosterone and estrogen because a lot of people who I know have gone through testosterone also have like issues crying, displaying emotions, things like that. But as a woman starting off, my first reaction used to be like, oh, I'm going to text someone about how angry I like sad I am about this. And then it was kind of like an urge to very much intrinsically, if you have a woman friend and you're very close, you're expected to express like this very 
outbursty emotions, I would say. And I've had that experience with a lot of other womenly friends towards me. And then as a man, you're very much expected to be like, stoic, calm about it. You might text someone and they'll say, hey, man, that sucks. And you say, yeah, man, it's all right. But that stoicism <laughs> is very much like a heavy, heavy present part, I think. Yeah. Thanks so much for calling in. Um, and I think, you know, saying, yeah, man, that sucks. Like, both, it's like, it is like validating, even though it's many fewer words than than maybe um, what a female friend would text back. Um, thanks so much for your call. Danielle, is there anything that you wanted to say to Alex's call that, you, that Alex made you think about? Yeah, I do think about, um, you know, I, I for a long time, I had the honor to, of providing therapy to trans-identified folks through their transition. And there is a sort of like gendered healing where they would share that, you know, as a female, it was much easier to be vulnerable with folks. And then it, when they fully transition and they present as male, people didn't receive it the same way. And it wasn't as welcome to be vulnerable. And I think that does go back to uh, maybe, you know, Avi can expand on his work on this, but where males definitely feel, you know, a stigma behind being vulnerable. And so, when you now live, you know, your life as a man and, and be authentic in that role, um, it's hard to get in touch with your vulnerable side anymore because of how society is seeing how you should do your healing. And so now it's sort of like this gendered thing that we're doing. Yeah, before you respond to that, Avi, I actually want to bring Amber in Pinehurst, North Carolina, into the conversation because you have a question about um, talking with your son about accessing therapy. Is that right, Amber? That's correct. My son is an adult and very resistant to therapy, saying that he doesn't feel like there's any value in it. And he's also resistant to medication, feeling like it would change his base personality. And since he is an adult, I really have no leverage. I just have tried to encourage him to seek therapy because he is very deep in a depression and it is very obvious to everyone who has ever known him, but he feels like this is just who he is now. And I don't see that as a functional human when you don't leave your room except for meals and when you are specifically asked to do a task. Hmm. It seems like you should want to seek therapy, but he's very resistant to it, will not see it as an option. Thank you for your call, Amber. And and Avi, what would you say to Amber and to other people who love and want uh, want their loved ones to be thriving and, and can't get them to uh, around on the idea of accessing care for themselves? I think that's very hard. I mean, my heart um, goes out to her. And, you know, on the one hand, I've, in my experience, sometimes people have to really um, be – put like kind of pushed into a corner before they'll go. Unfortunately, um, I think one thing that can help destigmatize things is more, you know, there are, um, there are like really nice online resources, you know, I mean, a place like Reddit has good and bad things, but there are some really great, um, subreddits for, um, for men and advice from, um, from men and, um, I think just hearing from your peers one way or another that this is not such a strange thing and that healing and growth and change is possible, mm -hmm. I think that would be a place to start. 
Thank you. Avi Klein is a psychotherapist in New York. Daniel Munoz joined us from Cal State University, Long Beach, where she's the director of the Center for Basic Needs. Thank you to both of you for taking our calls. And listeners, thank you for calling and sharing with us. This is Hold On.